You are listening to audio from Riverside Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit riverside.church. So we are now in week two of a series called Unimaginably Good News, based on the Paul's, Paul and Timothy's letter to the Colossians. Um, and today we're going to just dive right into these I don't know if you noticed how majestic and wonderful those words were that Karen just read to us, but I'm, I'm pretty excited to dig in. Uh, but let's pray as we do so. Lord, we are already here in your presence. We thank you for inviting us into your presence and for always being present to us. We thank you for filling this space with your glory and for allowing us to to see it, to catch a glimpse of it, even as we long for that day that we get to experience that glory and witness your glory in all of its fullness. Lord, today as we come to your word together and come to this, this text, this hymn, this reflection on your goodness, on the complete work of Jesus in this world and in the universe. I just ask that as we, as we look at it together, that the words of my mouth and the meditations and the thoughts of every one of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, well, let's begin. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So verses 15 and 16 make these sort of increasingly wild and mind-blowing claims about Jesus, and then verse 17 is a summary of what was just said. So we'll start at the very top. The sun is the image of the invisible God. That sounds somewhat familiar. The image of God, right? Uh, Genesis 1.27, we have a declaration. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. All the way in the very first chapter of the Bible, right? So that's familiar verbiage. But, um, but is that what's going on here? Mankind are created in the image of God. But is that all that Paul is saying about Jesus here, that he is created in the image of God? As amazing as it is to be created in the image of God, and praise God that I have been and and each one of you have been created in the image of God, as amazing as that is, that's not the full extent of what is going on in this verse, in this passage. Because verse 16 continues, in him, in him, the one who, who is the image of the invisible God, all things were created. Okay, so we're back to talking about creation, but not in in an unexpected way. If all things were created in him, him being created in the image of God feels a little bit less, it's like anticlimactic almost for what this text is saying. Because there's something extra special about the way the sun bears the image of the invisible God. In fact, Jesus the Son makes the invisible God visible. 
Jesus reveals what the true and full and complete image of God looks like in flesh. This is no imperfect, you know, if you, if you like look at it from just the right angle, you might see the image of God. No, this is like Jesus is the image of God showing us exactly what God looks like. So when we look at Jesus and we see his actions and we hear his words and we see witness his movements, we are seeing exactly what God is like. No big deal, right? Well, I think that's pretty, pretty incredible, right? So in addition to that, in addition to being the image of the invisible God, Jesus is also firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn in two different senses. The first has to do with creation. The second one we'll get to a little bit later. Um, but we, this, again, kind of it kind of breaks my brain because we associate the birth of Jesus, him being firstborn, with a certain holiday, right? You guys, red and green? Um, that's a big hint. Yeah. So we, we think of Christmas when we think about the birth of Jesus. But that was also, that Christmas was a long time ago, the, the first Christmas, but that was also very much not the very first thing that happened in this existing world, right? That was not the first, chronologically speaking, Christmas was not the first day of creation. That did not happen in Genesis chapter 1. Christmas, okay? Right? Do we agree with that? Okay, all right. Making sure we're on the same page. So Jesus being born in Bethlehem didn't actually happen in Genesis chapter 1. So when we say that Jesus is the firstborn over creation, it is not referring to the incarnation or the birth of Jesus in flesh, but somehow, rather, it connects Jesus Christ to the creation of all things, somehow before he was born in Bethlehem. I'm just pointing out the facts of like how this must be, be, be working. The world and everything in it was somehow created in and through Jesus even before he was revealed to us on this earth. As Jesus so controversially said in John chapter 8, before Abraham was born, I am. So Jesus had a sense, right? And he dropped hints here and there about what, what this was all about. But let, like, let's look at this, this list of things that are created in Jesus from verse 16. It says that for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So, I don't often, on my day-to-day -day life, think about the fact that everything was created through Jesus. I think of Jesus as Redeemer. I think of Jesus as a lot of things. But I don't always think of it in my brain as like, oh yeah, Jesus created all this. I think of that as more like a God the Father and the Spirit hovering above the waters sort of situation, right? Nothing in heaven or on earth, nothing we see or do not see, no institution or government or structure or organization of any kind would exist without Jesus Christ. That is what this text is saying. It was all made in him, it was all made through him, and it was all made for him. And it was all intended to glorify him. So as far as I can make sense of it, this is something that has always been true, Right? All this was created in Christ Jesus and through Christ Jesus and for Christ Jesus. It's always been true, but it was only revealed to us in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
It's sort of like this was a big movie with a twist ending, or not even an ending, but a twist point in the middle, right? Once you discover the twist, it changes the way you look at everything else. So you want to rewind to the bad nation you have now, right? Quite famously, when, uh, I don't know if, is it, is, it, is it too early to spoil the movie Sixth Sense for you all? So, <laughs> the Sixth Sense was this movie with a very, very famous plot twist, which I, I won't spoil for you, just in case you haven't seen it. Um, but I do recall the week that movie came out, Jimmy Kimmel went on the air and spoiled it, just told everybody what had happened. And I remember just being like, I'd already seen it, so I was like, no, didn't get me. But it was just like this, you know, they're spoiler alerts for a reason, and that's probably one of, the, one of those reasons. But fundamentally, when you know this thing about the story, it changes the way you view the whole story from the beginning, right? Everything is transformed because of what we know, right? There was no way to know about Jesus Christ and the, the universe being created for him through, and through him and in him until Christmas and then Easter. And that whole story came to pass, and that changes the way we see everything from the beginning of time to the end of time. It changes everything. So, um, ultimately, I don't understand all that. I tried to explain it to you as well as I understand it, and hopefully it makes a little bit of sense to you. But ultimately, I have to receive it in faith as part of the beautiful mystery of the gospel. And hopefully as we keep going, it'll make a little more sense. So I mentioned in verse, verse 17 is a summary statement of of 15 and 16. He is before all things, and in him all things grow together. And that about sums up the mystery. He is the essential source, the source of life and creation. He is the agent of creation, the one who actually does it, and he is the goal or the end of creation. No big deal. Let's just keep moving on. No, this is incredibly mind-blowing stuff, and I think it becomes even more clear as we keep pushing through the rest of what this, these verses have to say. So let's continue to verse 18. And, as if that wasn't enough, he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So the first part of verse 18 is another sort of summary statement uh, about what is to come, about what is said in verses 19 and 20. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So this is the second time the word firstborn has been used. First time it was firstborn of creation. This time... We're talking about Jesus being the firstborn from among the dead, which makes a little bit more sense in our minds, right? Being, Jesus being the firstborn of creation kind of messes with our timeline. But Jesus being firstborn from among the dead, we know that because we're Easter people, right? We, we know what it means for Jesus to be the firstborn from among the dead. We know exactly what he's talking about. Every Easter and every single Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We celebrate him being firstborn from among the dead, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and that he is not the only one who will experience resurrection, but indeed he was the firstborn. 
the beginning or the source of creation. He's the first fruits of what's to come. He's the beginning and the source of creation. He's the beginning and the source of salvation. He is the beginning, the head, the source of the church. So yeah, he has supremacy and authority over all. And in verses 19, Reverse, yeah, verses 19 and 20, we get even more dimensions of Christ's authority. Um, how about this one? For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All his fullness. This is a key passage in actually how we think about the Trinity. You guys have learned about the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity. And you probably have heard at some point that the word Trinity doesn't exist in the Bible anywhere, but it is a concept that we created to make sense of all the things that Jesus says about himself and all the things the Bible says about God. And one of those things is that Jesus somehow had all the fullness of God dwelling in him. All his fullness. So Jesus was not, hear me say this, Jesus was not some limited amount of God shoved into a human body. Like we shoved as much God as we could into one human body and we called it Jesus. So called it good enough. No, it's not, not, just, not just enough or what we could fit, but all of the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus. All of it. What? <laughs> it's good. It's so good. And, and we're still not done. Because in verse 20 says, so all his fullness is dwelling in him. And through him, through Jesus, to recon reconcile to himself, to God, all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So about 15, 20 years ago, this verse and others like it really kind of blew my mind when it came to the reach and the extent of the good news of Jesus, of what the good news of Jesus really is and was. So theologians refer to a verse like this as like the cosmic significance of Christ. I always knew from a young age that Jesus mattered for humanity. I was taught that in church, that Jesus matters for humanity. That he died and rose again for the sins of each individual human. And that each individual human could be made new by following Jesus in faith. That is good news, right? But I never stopped once to think about what Jesus might have to do with everything else. Right? What does he have to do with everything else? This world that God so loved. Full of humans, to be sure. Beloved creation but also full of lots of other things. What does Jesus have to do with all that? So if Jesus' sacrifice achieves the reconciliation of all things to himself, things on earth and things in heaven, that called into question a lot of the things that I had believed about the world being irreparably corrupt and headed towards destruction. I mean, I had learned that caring for the earth was a good thing. I learned that mostly in school. But I had never made the connection from that to Jesus. What did Jesus have to do with that? Did Jesus really care? And I'm not here to say, I'm not here to say, that the primary function of this verse is to turn us into environmentalists. That's not what I'm saying. That's not like the primary thing here. But it does quite clearly call us to think about the way we inhabit and steward the world under the work of Christ Jesus. That that matters. It does matter. And it matters to Jesus. The fact that Jesus is working to reconcile all things means that there's, there are no things that I get to just cast aside. No creatures that I get to cast aside. 
as somehow God-forsaken or something that doesn't matter. A Christ-centered view of the world must factor in the whole scope of Jesus' work, which means that in Christ, there is a pathway for everything, just as there is a pathway for everyone to belong. Every square inch of everything finds its source in Jesus, finds its reconciliation in Jesus, and finds its ultimate meaning in Jesus. And that's the only place that those things can be found. We still tracking? All right, I'll keep going. So in these last three verses, we turn specifically to people, to humans, to humanity. And uh, you may remember that I mentioned last week, but if you weren't here last week, I'll say it again, that this church in, in Colossae was primarily a Gentile church. So not, not from the people of Israel, not, from, not people of the story of the Old Testament in general. Um, and verse 21 is one of the reasons that we know this. Because Paul uses this language that he doesn't really use when he's talking about the people of Israel. He uses the language of alienation and enmity. Yes, he talks about the people of Israel being lost, but alienated and being enemies of God, that's usually not what he, he usually reserve, reserves that language for the Gentiles. So we're just going to read verses 21 through 23. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under earth or under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become. A servant. So verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. This is back in the day talk. Right? Paul is saying, back in the day, this is what it was like. And perhaps we can all relate, it, relate to this idea of feeling alienated from God. Um, but I personally have a hard time thinking of a season in my life where I felt like God was my enemy in my mind or anywhere else. I can certainly remember some evil behavior. Some of it might have been fairly more recently than I'd like to admit, right? Some selfish, arrogant behavior that wounded others, right? We all have these, these things in our stories, right? So even though I didn't classify God as an enemy in my own mind, in my heart and with my actions, yeah, I exhibited animosity towards God. I lived that way. But I grew up going to church, okay? I grew up going to church, so um, I was raised in the way of Jesus, and it is really right and good that I didn't consider myself an enemy of God, right? That was not what I was raised to believe, that I was an enemy of God. I was raised to believe that Jesus loved me and wanted, wanted me to follow him and give my life over to him. So I want to be clear that technically I am a Gentile through and through, okay? I'm not a descendant of the people of Israel. But that means something very different for me today than it meant when Paul wrote these words a long time ago, okay? For Paul and Timothy, Gentiles were the ones who were largely unfamiliar with the ways of the God of Israel. 
who has now been revealed in all of his fullness, all of his fullness, right, in the person of Jesus. So, it's different, right? It's different. We've seen and talked about in our last two sermon series, the Sermon on the Mount and in Psalms, that though historical circumstances and a bunch of other things make it appear often that the Lord Yahweh of the Old Testament and the person of Jesus are somehow at odds, but they are not. We pointed out again and again that Jesus is not in any way against the God of the Old Testament. But just as we said up in verse 19, Jesus is the fullness of Yahweh and the fulfiller of Yahweh's law. Jesus reveals in his life, through his teachings, through his actions, through his work of salvation, who God the Father truly is, who the God of Israel truly is. So from Paul and Timothy's perspective, followers of Jesus from the people of Israel had a head start because they already knew that story. They had a head start because they already knew the story of Yahweh. They already knew the character of that God, the God of Israel. And for Paul, that doesn't make them in any way better than any Gentile. But they had a head start. That's why he says a few times throughout his, his writing, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, right? It's not a matter of like one's better than the other. It's just a matter of chronology. They heard the story first. I got a head start. And some of you did too. By being raised by faithful Christian parents. In a church that taught me well, gave me space to discover a faith that I could truly own in a personal and an ongoing way. I got a head start in that. And I praise God for it every day. I know that's some of your stories and that's, very far from some of your stories, right? But no matter what your starting point is, whether you come from the people of Israel, whether you're a Gentile, whether you grew up atheist, or whether you grew up Catholic, or you grew up evangelical, or you grew up anything else, your invitation to reconciliation with God is summed up in one thing, and that is the person of Jesus. Who does the reconciling? Who reconciles you to God? Who reconciles us to each other as one body? Who reconciles all things to himself? Who is the reconciler, period? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, my friends. And verse 22, but now he, Jesus, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish, free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you've heard, that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I want, I, I just, it's my heart's desire today that you hear this good news today, every one of you, that you hear this good news. God has reconciled you and made you holy through Christ. God has reconciled you and made you holy through Christ. That is a done deal. But verse 23 clarifies some expectations. Our active role in this reconciliation, because it's life-changing. We're expected to continue in our faith, established and firm, and not move from our hope. That is the expectation for each one of us grafted into Christ's family. It's an expectation of persevering faith. Not an expectation, not an expectation that we will silence our questions. 
right? Not an expectation that we will not criticize when we see things that we don't like going on in the church or in the faith. Not an expectation that we will just nod our heads yes. Not those expectations, but an expectation for us to hang on to a persevering faith. That no matter how far we wander, we will come back. And that the invitation will always be there for us to come back. The expectation can feel like a lot. Being asked to do anything can feel like a lot, right? Just ask my kids. We take the trash out. That can feel like a lot. I get it. It's so heavy. Got to wash your hands afterwards. But consider this. There is expectation on us, but consider this. Jesus has literally done all of the legwork for us. Come on. Jesus has done all the legwork for us. He took on the pain. He took on the suffering. He took on the sin and the rebellion of this entire world and universe into his very body. He took all of that. Every fractured and broken person, entity, creature, every distressed and uncomfortable relationship, he took onto his shoulders. And in this very public moment, a moment that was intended to humiliate Jesus and his followers, very publicly humiliate him and his followers, anybody who would dare to believe in him, what does he do? He emerges victorious. Instead, embarrassing them, he embarrasses the powers and principalities that thought that they could hold him down, that they thought that they could put out that light for good. And they could not. Jesus' resurrection on the third day, this is why we are Easter people, because that moment changed everything. Jesus' resurrection on the third day confirms everything that we've just read in this, these words of Colossians. It is the ultimate vindication. It demonstrates that, that, that these realities have always been true. And this is just like a summary of these verses 15 through 23 from Colossians. One is that nothing in all creation ever exists outside of the reality that Jesus is Lord. No institutions, no powers, no structures exist outside of the reality that Jesus is Lord. The whole church is united in one body with Jesus as Lord. All things, all of it, is reconciled to Jesus the Lord. And you, 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 every single one of you, are reconciled and invited into an abundant life of faith in Jesus the Lord. Is that powerful? I hope, I hope it is. It just feel, it feels like a lot of words, but I hope their power sinks in. I mentioned that uh, 15 to 20 years ago, this passage was a, a key one that revealed to me that um, though I had received the good news of Jesus and believed it and was on the path to even building my life around it, my understanding of the gospel was actually still too small. And that's okay. It's okay. Um, there's nothing wrong with growing over time because none of us understands as much today as we will later or 
none of us realizes how much we don't understand right now until later when we realize, oh yeah, thought I had that figured out. Yeah. Believing the gospel is a daily practice. And not every day is the same. I want to believe the good news more every day. And I want to understand the good news more deeply every day. I want it to get into nooks and crannies of my life and in the world around me in new ways every single day. Ways that I never dreamed of before. And today I want to offer to you my understanding of the gospel. Just humbly offer it to you because I was tasked to wrestle with and write this as a research paper when I was in seminary, okay? The assignment, and I might remind you, this was a research paper, a graduate-level research paper, was to write the gospel in 55 words or less. A graduate-level research paper with at least 10 sources, and the body of the paper was to be no more than 55 words. Try that. I mean, that's a free assignment if you want to. You don't have to pay for a seminary course. It was the best assignment I've ever had at any level of school. But it was really hard. Because you might have noticed, but pastors and me particularly can be wordy. And 55 isn't very many. But I do want to show it to you today. Not because I think it's the right answer. Maybe the emphasis isn't exactly where it needs to be at every point. But it is so anchored in this Colossians text. And I hope that it begins to approach the fullness of the gospel. So as we're thinking about coming to the table, as we are preparing our own hearts to come to the table today, I'm just going to put up on the screen these words. I'll let you ponder it for a couple minutes before we come to the table. And it's this. God reconciles everything to himself by sending Jesus Christ to absorb the sin and suffering of the world through his death, to make a new creation through his resurrection, empowering the believing community with the Holy Spirit to bless the world with God's truth and love toward the renewal of all things at our Lord's return. I'm just going to let you sit with it for a minute or two. In Jesus, 
there is a pathway for everything and everybody to belong. For everybody, the pathway is through faith in Jesus Christ, right? So we become part of that believing community that gets filled with the Holy Spirit and is tasked to do this remarkable work. I hope that today's scripture, I hope that today's message hits you and makes you think, wow, that's unimaginably good news. I hope. That's why the sermon, the series title is that. I think, I think it's just unimaginably good news. Isn't Jesus awesome? I also just, I just hope that we're filled with that, a little sense of awe, that Jesus Christ is awesome. All the, all the fullness of God dwelt in him. Just that one little line could be a practice of meditation for months or an entire lifetime. As we prepare to come to the table, let's pray. Lord, uh, you are so good. Holy, almighty, all-knowing. The firstborn of creation and the firstborn from among the dead. Today we lay before you with our heads and our hearts and our hands. We humbly come before you and say, how, how, can we, how can we be of service? How can we give our lives more fully to this thing, to this gospel, to this good news, to this recreation and reconciliation of all things that is your vision of all that you've created, Lord. As we come to your table and are reminded who we belong to, whose name we bear, and what family we are a part of, May that reality sink deep into our hearts. That we are daughters and sons of God the Father. That we are sisters and brothers of Jesus Christ the Son. And that we are indwelt and filled by the Holy Spirit. And that we are connected to our sisters and brothers as one body. Holy Spirit, will you make it real to us today? And not just today, may that reality drive us as we go from this place today. As we live every moment of our lives, God be glorified in us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Riverside Church. For more resources, visit riverside.church.